Hello, my name is Lamine Zarat. I'm a founder and CEO of Stellify. Stellify is a financial empowerment platform that focuses on credit building first and financial management second. We just raised a Series A round, raised $15 million. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Fundraising Debrief, the podcast where we share the real stories behind successful founders and their recent VC financing rounds. My name is Vlad Kazaku and I'll be your host today as we interview Lamin Zarar. This is a very insightful episode with a three-time founder who raised several rounds of capital, minted one of the few Austin unicorns and successfully exited his previous startup via M&A. For more information about running a successful fundraise, including show notes, highlight clips, and exclusive scenes, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Fundraising Debrief, as well as on our website at thefundraisingdebrief.com. This episode is brought to you by Flowly, the number one choice for secure deck sharing and fundraising automation used by thousands of founders from 50 plus different countries. Now, let's dive right in. Lamin, such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Really, really much appreciate taking the time to join us as we debrief your latest Series A round. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. I think there's a lot to unpack from your journey. And I love when we get the chance to interview people who've been through the fundraising sprint several times because they definitely have some interesting stories to tell, not just from the latest round, but also from some of the previous round. So for everybody who doesn't yet know what you do at Stellify, can you give us the quick rundown on what the company is? Yeah, so at Stellify, we're rebuilding the credit bureau from ground up. We believe that the credit process as a paradigm is outdated. It's based on probabilistic models, based on predictive analytics and data that sort of feeds them. And we think that credit as it's done today should rely more on transparency and access. In other words, people's money is readily available and people are willing to share it in exchange for capital, right? In exchange for access to more money, so to speak, usually loans and credit cards. And that is a much more accurate way to anticipate whether the person is going to be a good borrower or not a good borrower versus looking at some of the history. I'm not saying history is bad, but we think that this is the best way to do it. And that's what we started. So we are partnering with the bureaus. We're not adversarial in any way, shape or form. We help our customers link all of their bills and their bank accounts, which is very important to pay those bills. We help them pay those bills. And then we, of course, analyze their financial health as we do it. And ultimately, we help them build their credit, the traditional side of the credit. And while we're doing that, we're also connecting them with offers that they couldn't qualify for outside of our system. These home loans, car loans, whatever, personal loans, debt release of sorts, and all kinds of different things. Fantastic. And I like the fact that it has a very clear social impact into generating overall more equity in the credit space for those individuals who may not necessarily, as you said, qualify for some of the offers that you're now able to qualify them for. That's right. Yeah, there's definitely an element of social impact. Even when we think about our problem that we're solving, it's a truly a policy problem. We think in the United States, and to an extent, in most developing Western countries, there's a similar set of impediments for people to access credit. Most Western economies, but U.S. specifically, is grounded in consumer credit. It's truly built. Consumer credit is the hub of the hub and spoke model. Virtually everything revolves around American consumers' ability to buy stuff by borrowing money. And what's interesting, a very large portion of those consumers get cycled out constantly. And when you think about flywheel or any system that has a degree of like self-perpetuation, when you start losing energy, right, entropy occurs, the system becomes weaker and moves slower. And so we are identifying this deficiency, a systemic deficiency 
that hasn't been addressed by policy and, and the tech has its room in this case. I feel always the philosophical question is, will the public officials be able to change or will the private sector be able to make a larger impact? And yeah. I feel like you as well as I, as a fellow immigrant, have quite been shocked by the reliance of the American society on credit and the fact that everything is built around it. So it's very interesting to bring that perspective into building this company. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for th saying that. I think as an immigrant, I have a really unique vantage point into the problem because I can compare and contrast it, especially an immigrant. I live in multiple different countries. I do think that this is a good system. I think a system, every system could use maintenance and tweaking and upgrades. And I think our system is way overdue for a series of upgrades. And I think public policy, like I said, has its role, but the public policy machine is so slow, right? It's a Titanic. You really can't, and it's designed to be slow and it's good that it's slow. And so while the Titanic is moving, we're in a little rubber speedboat. It can move a lot faster and address a lot of the issues and fill the gaps. And this is certainly not the first speedboat you built and scale. So I would like to spend a little bit of time discussing that building just exiting it, spending some time as an executive of the acquiring company, and then somehow filling the itch to get back into the rodeo. Same industry, different approach to solving a different problem. What was the genesis of coming back in the arena just a year after your last exit? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> just, I guess, obsession with the experience, right? It's an affliction of sorts. It's addictive. You know, when you start solving problems and you start seeing the outcomes, it is unbelievably addictive because you realize that, yeah, unlike being a cog in a large machine, an organization, you're really realizing that everything that you do has direct impact and it's very rewarding. It's kind of like a dopamine hit. So that's a personal reason, but it's much more complex, right? So the decisions like this are usually multifaceted. So just to give you a bit of a background, my last company was a neobank for SMBs and freelancers, a company called Joust, was acquired by a legal tech company called Zen Business and it had a vision for this acquisition process to combine the two and create this holistic solution for a small business. In other words, a small business has had a bunch of different tools that they can acquire through different companies online, but really what they needed is a full stack solution to help them start, run, and grow their business. Or take an idea, make it a reality by forming a business using all of the legal and compliance tools, but also then access marketing tools to help them grow the business and accounting tools to help them manage the business, banking and finance tools to reinforce it and fortify it. And that was it. It was a fantastic experience. One thing we really couldn't do well was credit because credit is so complex. You know, and I remember just diving deeper into the, the nitty gritty of why entrepreneurs have bad credit scores and then looking at larger population, realizing like, holy crap, this is not an entrepreneurial problem. It's an American consumer problem, 155 to 175 million, depending on which report you look at, million Americans have scores below 680. And it's mind boggling. Think about it like that's two thirds of the adult population in a country, like I said, that's built on consumer credit. It's a serious problem, but it's also a massive opportunity when you think about it from a business perspective. And so when I realized that, I knew that I wanted to solve that problem. And it was also a very personal problem for me. As an immigrant, I've made a lot of mistakes with credit, not understanding how it works. My family made a lot of mistakes. We paid dearly for it by taking out loans with too much interest or taking money when we shouldn't have borrowed money. And I wanted to solve that problem for a very large population. It's a huge market, very huge, big problem. I wanted to address it at its core. There are other players out there. If you think about it, like every consumer neobank now has a credit builder. But we believe 
that those other products are inferior and because most of them are addressing the symptom of the problem. If you have a bad credit score, most credit builder solutions give you a little card with very little spending limit because no one control their risk. And I'm not trying to diminish those solutions by calling them little, but they really are. And it has a really minor impact on your score because the problem is not that you have a bad credit score. The problem is that you as a consumer are habitually late on paying your bills monthly and you're just a bad borrower for many different reasons. And we wanted to address that. We wanted to make sure that we made your average American consumer a better borrower by helping them manage their bills and pay those bills on time. It's a very clear market. I feel a lot of people agree not only that it's a great business problem to solve, but also that you're the right person to solve this, right? You were able to raise quite a significant amount of money, about a seed and a Series A, from yeah. some notable investors that want to place a bet that you're the right person to, to solve that, right? Or at least go as far as you can possibly go to solve this. So I wanted to start our fundraising debrief and understand a little bit better of your fundraising journey with Stellarify specifically. And first of all, just to get an understanding, what was the motivation behind raising your Series A right now, just one year after raising a quite substantial seed in, in 2022? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a couple of reasons. Once again, it's a really complex problem solution here when it comes to sets. We were fortunate enough to strike product market fit very fast as a company. And the second we realized that, hey, this thing is working, people are buying it, they're willing to part with their money and not leave us, right? Use us for an extended period of time. We realized that we need more capital, to put it simply. We were not quite in hyper growth mode yet because we had a lot of controls and a lot of really tight screws. And we wanted to make sure that we knew that if we were to pour more capital at this problem, the whole thing wasn't going to fall apart. And so we tested this out and we rewrote it for almost a year and realized that, hey, this thing is intact, it's working, and it just needs more capital to grow. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of the product's growth and development and the product roadmap is that what we're building what you see today out in the market is a wedge. The big vision, as I mentioned, to be another bureau, it's very abstract and mushy, but the reality is that we're building a marketplace. We want to be able to pay all of your bills and then connect you to all those lenders. Now, that's a pretty complex solution to tackle. It requires a lot of capital. It requires not just product development and marketing, but also now biz dev and sales and bringing in those big, massive partners like financial institutions. And we didn't have those skill sets in-house, so we knew that we would have to hire pretty aggressively and build out the tools and the team around it. And so that was another motivation for us to bring more capital in the door. And then lastly, and once again, oversimplifying this, we were entering this really strange macro environment where capital is no longer in abundance. And I've lived through this before. And frankly, having capital in the door, a war chest of sorts, is good. <laughs> there are many different ways to look at it. And if you go on Twitter, for example, I think every entrepreneur has its own opinion in terms of how much capital you should take. But ultimately, and I can tell you this as a repeat entrepreneur, having capital is better not, than not having access to money. And I think every everyone would agree with that. And so we wanted to make sure that we had enough in the tank to, uh, to really outlive any of the downturn that was faced as a company and as a sector. And I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time on the macroeconomic context and putting this in context with the fact that a lot of your seed investors participated in the Series A. I think you mentioned in one of the interviews that actually all your seed investors participated in the Series A. So how have you really seen 
the macro environment play out in these countries, if at all, outside of just setting to raise a larger round? Have you seen some of the slowdown in capital allocation actually happening in your round? Yes, without a doubt. So I think every founder has a different approach to fundraising. And in that approach, by the way, should evolve with the company. And there are many, many different components to it. Mine is very similar to a sales process. I build a funnel and then I work through that funnel. And of course, the funnel then converts lower and lower and lower as you go down and you eventually end up with your cap table of investors who actually invested in you. So I start with a pretty wide net. And obviously for seed, it's a must. No matter whether you're a repeat founder and you have a reputation or not, you have to talk to a bunch of different people. It's a great learning process. With Series A, you have to be a lot more focused, but you should still drive a lot of interest. And that's what we did. The difference between this round and any other round of funding that I've raised is that there was no shortage of interest. A lot of investors, the, I think the last 10 years of, uh, of just exuberance and, and venture capital created a lot of VC firms. A lot of them were like brand spanking new. Like I've never heard of them, but here they are. They have a bunch of investments over the past two years and, and they're interested. And what was interesting though, is that despite the volume, not a lot of them are making any moves at all. It was mostly education. Let's learn about this company. Let's build a relationship and let's take our sweet time. And, and then maybe we'll, there's an opportunity, maybe we'll invest later down the road. And so that was a very painful experience because you spent a lot of time educating and knowing that the conversion rates are going to be much lower. One way to describe the difference between this current macro environment when it comes to fundraising and before is that the conversion rate is lower, no matter how great of a company you have. I mean, we were practically walking on water when it comes to Series A company. We had all of the things that every investor looks for in a company. We had fantastic, experienced veteran team with, with a combined track record of building several unicorns and managing over five exits. We had product market fit. We had revenues that just were just attractive as hell that you don't see at this stage. We had really good branding and good message and good sort of a growth rate, very, very healthy growth rate. And so when we went out to raise, we thought this is going to be not guaranteed, but this is going to be one of those things that will happen. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of uncertainty, but when we started to raise, we realized that investors are either just not moving. They'll they'll love what you're doing. They just don't have any capital to allocate because their LPs holding them back. And usually these are the newer funds. But even established funds wanted special deals. I feel like investors are people, and when they see companies struggling, they want to take a bigger chunk of your flesh. And so there were a lot of investors who were like, yeah, we'll write you a check tomorrow, but at a significantly lower valuation. That made no sense, right? It's not logical at all. In fact, I think it's damaging to them and to the company if you do this, because you, you sort of hamstring this particular company. You affecting the cap table negatively. And so we fought against that a lot. And so we got the valuation that we wanted and we thought the company actually objectively deserved at this stage. And yeah, that was a challenge. So that all those things were challenging in the fundraising environment. Like I said, the volume I have to deal with in terms of how many of them are interested and how many actually are ready to write checks. And then of course the nickel and diming and looking for special deals because they see everything else falling apart and they think automatically that we should just bring the valuation down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the fact that some people are raising from a position of weakness does not mean that everybody's doing so. And you had yeah. all the aces in your sleeve to do that. So I'm curious, it's very interesting to hear that. Did you at any point doubt that the round is going to come together as expected after coming in maybe with, you know, yeah. higher expectation than what you played out in the first few weeks of fundraising? 
Yeah. Yeah. I would be lying if I said that I had absolutely no, I mean, that'd be crazy, either just completely insane or, uh, or, or a liar. Yes. I doubted many times. I, uh, I thought, crap, well, maybe we shouldn't do the round now because I really don't want to devalue this company and give away a big chunk of flesh. Maybe we should just do an extension with existing investors. And we had people who advised us to do this. We had folks who said, just raise another 7 million and, and wait it out, come back in 12 months. And we weighed all those options out. We wanted to make sure that we were doing the right thing because it's not about us. It's about our customers and about our stakeholders. And we wanted to make sure that whatever decision we made really kept that in mind, that we wanted to make sure that there was an ongoing uh, operations of business continuity and that we were good stewards and fiduciaries of our existing investors and made the right choice. And of course, the upside, right? We want to make sure that we did not completely cut off the upside by making a decision that was short-sighted. Absolutely. You definitely get the people who are, let's say, dragging their feet and all that we just discussed earlier about people maybe being slower to make decisions, having certain constraints that maybe a year or two ago they didn't have. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the people who said no. Was there any consistent reason why people passed? Yeah, it was one consistent reason. And it's, it was a compilation of reasons, but really all distilled to one thing, efficiency. Uh, what's interesting, and this is a management team challenge, management teams in startups have to be very flexible and adjust to investor expectations. Two years ago, the expectation at this stage of, the, of growth and development for a Series A company is that the team would manage the organization toward max growth, almost growth at all costs. Right now, caveats, ton of caveats there. Like, obviously you have to think about the business. This business has to make sense and you have to have a very clear line of sight in terms of gaining some efficiencies. But by series A, no one would ever judge you based on whether you're efficient as a business or not. And everyone would judge you on growth. And we optimized that. <clears throat> we knew that we were entering a time where efficiency was anticipated. This efficiency would be a major part of the conversation but we did not anticipate to what extent it would be important to investors. The people who said no to us said no to us because they wanted to see a business series A level operating like a series C company. We worked out all the kinks. Profitability was just around the corner and, and still have growth, right? So like have your cake and eat it too. And it was fascinating to me. Like I, you know, I put myself in investor shoes. I'm an LP in a fund. I'm empathetic and I try to understand their position. And I totally get it. Obviously, the perfect world, you want a company that's super, super efficient, has wide margins, and maybe even profitable or close to profitable, and also is growing fast. But those levers are incongruent sometimes at this stage. A smart investor understands that there are stages to growth. Each organization follows an adoption curve, right? And when you move along this adoption curve, the dynamic changes, and you have to prioritize certain things like growth is so important at this stage. Brand development is very important along with growth. And efficiency is important, but not as important. And you have to say, okay, is there a clear line of sight? Are there levers that you can tweak if you absolutely have to make it super efficient? You don't have to have them now. And if you have them, then you know, by all means, this is great. That wasn't part of the investor calculus for folks who said no. A lot of them were just like, we want all of this and we want a mature operation and we want you to continue growing crazy. And it was one of those things that we had to pick our battles. And it's such a delicate conversation to have of like, why is that happening? I feel like there's two school of thoughts, right? The people are saying, well, there's such an abundance of venture capital firms that there may not be as many pure startups, companies that can actually grow that exponential curve. And that there's some fundamentals 
behind it where you can underwrite, quite frankly, that risk at this early stage because there's enough upside in the future. And then the other camp of people are just more risk averse. But then the question is, then why are you trying to deploy capital in venture? Because that may not really be the industry of choice for a risk averse investor. I completely agree with you. You probably heard this many times from many different founders, but I think it's worth repeating again. <clears throat> I think there were many VCs that were created in the time of abundance, and they had very different priorities then and a different perspective. And there shouldn't have been VCs in the first place, to be honest with you. I know this is a weird thing to say, but it's true. Just like some founders should never be founders. You learn your lesson, you move on, and you know you get a good job. I think it's we are in some sort of a time of reckoning. Companies are going under and so are venture capital firms. They're, it's a purifying experience where you know some of those folks realize that, oh man, I shouldn't have taken LP's money and committed to deploying it because this is not something I want to do. This venture capital is about hitting home runs and I'm just not, I'm too risk averse to go for a home run every time. And I should be maybe private equity, right? Operating small businesses and doing leverage buyouts or whatever. Maybe that's a right approach for me. And that's what we've seen. And like I said, it, there's a strong correlation. It's not every time a strong correlation between young fund, like less than four years old and, and those kind of behaviors. It's interesting because I will have a little bit of pushback on that. And the pushback is that we've seen some of that behavior, even with some more established funds that maybe were call it seven, eight, probably post 08, so that there may be some explanation of not seeing a proper downturn in this market, still significantly reducing the risk appetite during the past 12 months. Yeah, look, I accept your pushback because we've seen that as well. Like I said, it's a correlation, but there are outliers. There are a couple of funds, and I'm no, I won't name any names. They're very established with a very, very attractive brand, a brand that's sort of like, you know, kingmaker brand of sorts, right? Where they know that the brand alone is worth a lot to a founder. And they've been incredibly conservative because I think what they're doing, I think they're bargain hunting. They know that it's not just capital when it comes to their investment. It's also like association with them that will potentially help you raise more capital down, down the line. And they're the ones that are saying, hey, you need to be more efficient. Hey, you need to do all this, all those other things. Well, by the way, we also want to invest, but at a significantly lower valuation because we think that it will be easier for you to invest further down the road, especially with our brand being on the cap table. I've seen that and I think it's unfair and I think it's also very myopic. It's so wrong. I really can't, I cannot put myself in their shoes and, and somehow justify this as the right strategy. Luckily, let's say you, you didn't need them, right? Because we're about to switch the conversation a little bit to the people who said yes, right? Like you, you did successfully raise the $15 million Series A on top of your $7 million seed. You did mention that a lot of the people who participated were investors from the seed. So I wanted to double down a little bit on that round dynamic and the round composition and get an understanding of, first of all, what do you think clicked with the existing investors? And then we can spend a little bit of time discussing about the new investors who came into this round. Yeah, for sure. When you're a seed investor, it's it's a really exciting opportunity. I think seed and A are probably two most exciting investment opportunities for any investor out there because you see the company from its inception and as it develops. And I think you are in a position to then predict the trajectory. Sometimes companies pivot and do worse or better down the line. But I think for the most part, companies telegraph whether they're going to be successful or not very early. And one way to telegraph whether you're moving in the right direction 
is obviously growth. The other one is also execution. And just like your management team shows maniacal execution and addressing mistakes quickly, addressing any issues that arise and just squashing them and then making decisions. A lot of decisions very, very fast without missing a beat. <clears throat> and that comes with experience. And what's interesting, we've made mistakes along the way, like I think any other management team, but we've made those mistakes or similar mistakes so many times across many different companies that there's a lot of muscle memory and in our operations process where it just looks from to an outsider, if I'm a seed investor getting my monthly updates, like we are just skimming through things and sprinting the entire time without really slowing down and taking every corner very smoothly. And so this is why I think everyone reinvested. They just saw that these guys got the product out the door in seven months. They started to grow very aggressively right away. They hit their 1 million ARR in just a couple of months. The growth has been steady. And despite the fact that there are setbacks that they shared with us, they figured out solutions to those setbacks really fast. And I'm not just patting myself and the team in the back here, but just illustrating a perspective that a seed investor would have. And so by the time we went out and said, hey, we want to bring in more capital, they understood the macro dynamics, they understood a need for capital, and they wanted to participate more. They basically said that we think that we de-risk this with initial investment. And now at this stage, it's even further de-risk as an operation. Why not top it off, right? And then, it makes perfect sense at this point. And I think it's interesting to pause for a second and double down on something that you mentioned around keeping the people up to date with the things that go on right and the things that are going wrong. Because someone can listen to this and say, well, of course it was easy for him, right? Every green flag happened. We don't realize that every green flag was its own sprint and mountain to climb, right? What's your perspective around the frequency and the quantity of transparency and communication with the existing investor base not necessarily in preparation for a new round, but just in general. What was your process around keeping everybody engaged? Yeah, so my approach and philosophy to communications is transparency. <clears throat> I want to be as transparent as I possibly can, but you have to strike a balance and it's an art more so than science. The balance is always in what you communicate and when you communicate it. I want to communicate all the things, but I also know that a person on the other end of that email is busy, has many different other ob obligations, probably won't retain, but maybe 20, 15% of what I'm communicating. So I'm selectively prioritizing the things that I want them to process. And it's usually related to, hey, this went one wrong, this is how we addressed it. We need to fix this still, can you help? It's usually kind of a call to action oriented because I wanna deploy them as resources. When we bring on investors, I think of them in my head as employees. I always think about, it's not just capital, it's always, what can you do for me besides capital? What can you do for this company? What kind of support can you provide? And yes, you know, when you don't have the luxury, you take the capital, right? You always prioritize the money as a founder. But when you do have the luxury of capital, you think about, hey, this person is great at marketing and they have fantastic ideas. We hit a wall here with marketing. Do you know any solutions? Do you know anyone can help us, right? Kind of thing. This person has a massive recruiting network. So if we need to hire someone, we can tap this person. So that's kind of like the way I do it. I trickle in all of the information. I just prioritize things that are most constructive and valuable to the organization versus saying, you know, regurgitating all of the crap that happened over the past 30 days, here you go, enjoy it, or sugarcoating things. I think that's really counterproductive too. And I gotta tell you, I used to do that. My very first company, I'm like, I wanna present the best stuff. I felt insecure about what we were doing. I felt insecure about every single mistake. I don't feel insecure about mistakes anymore because they're part of the process. I always list our challenges. And my format is this, the quick digest, this is all the stuff that happened, updates. A lot of them are exciting. Then I go into details of some of the challenges and usually very quantitative, heavy analysis. 
Then I list the challenges again and with our solutions to those challenges and then requests. Like you can help me with this and you can help me with that. Uh, and that's it. And that's, that's really a very simple, very clear way. That way they can quickly absorb it. And if they have nothing to add, you know, they just say, thank you and move on or you can contribute something to it. And I have to ask, because it's always an interesting answer coming out of this question, positive and negative surprises of asks for help or opinions, preconceived notions about people coming to around accepting the capital and what they can provide mm-hmm. versus what they end up providing later. Yeah. Anything learned? That this or the previous company would be a good yeah. sound of advice for someone starting on this journey. For sure, for sure. Once again, when you're starting on a journey, you don't have the luxury. I, I was there, right? You you just take the money. <laughs> yeah, and I, I you should always take the money. That's the priority, number one. And I don't care what anyone says. When you do have the luxury, what I did in, in the last two fundraisers for Stoify, I vetted those investors through references, either other investors or founders. If you can get your hands on a founder who dealt with this particular investor, that's the best thing because they'll give you all of the insight. Is this person actually going to help you or are they all talk and then they're going to check out? Or are they going to be like hovering over your shoulder, wanting to see every micro micro detail of what happened and not really help? There's so many different you know things that sort of manifest themselves right after the investment happens. I think my cap table is fantastic. I know this is a public broadcast, but I do believe that no one's perfect and we have people who are not perfect, but generally speaking, it's a fantastic cap table. Everyone on it either supports us through making introductions or doing stuff that we need or stays out of the way, right? And saying that you guys got this. The worst thing I think you can find yourself as a founder is a bunch of investors who want to run your company, but usually it doesn't happen unless you screw up. If they lose faith in you or you, know, you undermine their trust, that's when people start to get involved and that's problematic. So it's just, I think of it from a management perspective. It's like hiring employees who you no longer trust and then you're trying to do their job and you might as well fire those employees. You definitely don't want to find yourself in that position. <clears throat> but anyway, you vet those investors through references. That is, I think, incredibly important. And I would like to get one layer deeper because we had this debate a few times. Are you marrying the firm or are you marrying the partner? So to rephrase it, are you referencing the partner or are you referencing the firm? Where is more important for you as a founder? Yeah, it depends on the firm. I'll say that. It depends on a firm and a partner. I think in a small boutique ones, they're one and the same. Uh, you know, it's always it's always a human in that transaction, right? With the big ones, it depends. In many cases, it's still the partner, still the person who believes in you ultimately. But in some cases, you have access to the firm's resources where the partner is usually junior and it happens with bigger names. If you have someone who is on a junior side, maybe a brand new partner, but has access to all of those resources and they just basically the gateway to all the goodies that the firm has to offer. And, and hopefully they're cooperating because you can then ask them for things and they usually just make introductions instead of facilitating uh, the services. <clears throat> I do want to say one thing, and I, I heard you say marrying. I, uh, I have a, an allergic reaction to that expression because I think it's a wrong way of looking at a relationship between a founder and an investor. It's not a marriage. Marriage or family, they're not good analogies in this case because when you have a family, you uh, and I don't know about you, but family members have varying degrees of contribution. And a lot of times we drag them along, <laughs> no matter whether it should be there or not. In 
you know, high performance type relationships like special forces, professional sports and venture capital, <clears throat> it needs to be best person doing this job, right? So to me, it's more like a wartime alliance. If you form a, a guerrilla unit because you're rebelling against your local government, you got to go find some investors, right? To support that guerrilla unit. And that's the relation. That's how I see it. This is a, someone who believes in your cause. Someone is willing to like front you the cash to get out there and do some serious damage. And they're going to support you. And they're going to support you because they're part of this conflict with you now. They're involved, whether they have their hands dirty or not. <clears throat> that's how I see it. And this may not be the most eloquent and clean way of expressing it, but it hits home every time. And it eliminates this weird family dynamics. not family. And if you don't do your job, they can certainly walk away from you. Family doesn't walk away from you, right? Families, yeah, you did okay, but we still love you. <laughs> that is a very interesting take. It may have been the hottest take of the interview, this wartime alliance, but I really like it because it also signifies the kind of the holding hands against the common enemy or the common goal and the realities that you would most likely want people who are willing to fight and have the same determination to fight and see you as an equal partner in that fight rather than as you mentioned, someone that you can just drag along. Mm -hmm. um, although there's many examples where that drag along does happen, and which I think was that the common wisdom of marriage kind of came to be maybe from mistakes that people made in the past that resulted in this shared wisdom. Yeah. But speaking of wisdom, I do very much want to ask about the differences in your stages of learning, right? Between Stellarfy, uh, Joust. At what point did you truly gain the what you would consider now the, the complete framework, the complete playbook on how to approach fundraising. Yeah, I, I don't think I have a complete playbook. I got to be honest with you. I don't think anyone does. Mm -hmm. I, it's an evolving kind of a process with every new development, you know, SVB failing or crypto is not being a thing. Like you adapt to it and you start thinking about what's important to investors, what's important to their LPs as well. You have to think two layers up. Once again, it's people, right? And it's people management. Those investors are not, they're not like, Greek deities that so just exist there in the ether that you have to like make sacrifices to and hope they'll give you something in return. They're people just like you and many of them are entrepreneurs as well. And so they went to someone and they raised money from someone. And so they had to sell a story to somebody. What is that story? Once you understand that story, you start to fill the blanks in your own playbook. And so your playbook is always ad libs. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Ad libs is this game where you have a sentence that's missing words and you fill those words. And sometimes those words can change the meaning of the sentence. That's essentially your fundraising playbook. You should have a framework. There are certain things that are, that are constant in the process. For example, introductions, warm introductions, always, always beat a cold email. So that's part of that framework. But then in this environment, for example, a warm introduction may not be good enough and you have to have something else added to it. Does that make sense? It does. And I would still want to get from you a answer to what did you think was, let's say, one of the mistakes in Joust that you clearly did not see repeated in Stellarfy? Was there any particular yeah. moment of epiphany in the fundraising process, either by yeah. winning something big or losing something of importance during that time? Yeah, yeah. M many different things. Let me just kind of mention a couple of big ones. <clears throat> One, with Stellify, I've learned that post-joust, I learned that when you go with hat in hand asking for money, you shouldn't be in a position where you're sort of begging for money and trying to desperately sell your vision. You should be in a position where you're saying, hey, I have this thing that's working. 
it doesn't have to be out completely built. You don't even have to have clients, but you have to have enough evidence to say, this isn't just not my vision. I'm selling you some crazy story here. This thing is working and I have data why it will continue working and where it's headed. That's probably one of my biggest takeaways. And I know it's harder to execute sometimes, but the truth is you don't have to build a product. You can build a prototype. And if the prototype has legs, you are now in a very different negotiating position when you are raising. And so the mindset changes from, please give me some money because I have this thing that I think will work to, hey, this is a good opportunity. I am personally investing my time and resources in this. And everyone around me has invested their time and resources in this. This could be a good opportunity for you as well. We may take you on for this ride. So that's a very, very important differentiation versus, oh my God, please need help. One. The other one, I think I learned that fundraising process has to be ran like a sales process. It is a relationship business, but you have to start thinking about conversion rates and funnels. You have to think about who do you talk to first, right? Is this a right early investor to discuss this with? For example, I have my throwaways. Throwaways are the ones that, A, you don't want to invest in you, but you know they're gonna, they can provide you decent you know, feedback. Or two, this is like an investor who's a friend, potentially, who you're not worried about exposing the sort of a vulnerable underbelly to them that they help guide you through it. So you have to start thinking strategically about how you build that funnel. And then you manage that funnel throughout. So it's more of a quantitative approach. This time I use Trello through and through. Like before I had spreadsheets and notes and a bunch of crap. I got very, very organized. And frankly, I definitely attribute a lot of the success to having a very structured approach <clears throat> to fundraising. I feel like more people should start seeing fundraising like a structural sale process because a lot of people that even are great at sales mm -hmm. are not seeing the similarities between the process and therefore lacking all the structure that you mentioned and just winging it. I guess a, a final question that I would have for you around specifically the process, and you mentioned the warm introductions, would be your thoughts on the best paths to get warm introductions, because that is usually the most elusive concept after running yeah. a, a structured process is who do I even get the intro from, or who should I pick if yeah. I have three intro paths in? Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult question to answer clearly, so I'll give you some kind of high-level responses to it, my sort of knee-jerk gut re reactions. It depends on where you start. Like I said, you start with your quote unquote safe conversations, but you can also start with conversations that are not necessarily 100% throwaways. They may have a really good excuse to not invest in you. Maybe it's a fund that's a B2B and you're a B2C, right? So there's no sort of a shadow of doubt cast on you by that investor not investing you, but they have stellar reputation among other investors. And that's where you start the conversation, you impress them, you because there's very low pressure both parties know that investment is not going to happen. And if they like you and if they like what you're building, they can open up their book to you and then make some warm introductions that are very important. An introduction, when it comes to conversion at the end of the funnel, carries a lot more weight than anything else. I've observed that, and I don't have the number for you, but it's somewhere like around 80% of the influence on the outcome. The right introduction, and I've seen it time and again, can either lead to a seal deal and a term sheet or a wrong introduction can just derail the whole conversation, no matter how great you are, no matter how great your product and company is. So you got to choose wisely. <clears throat> like I said, if you, when you're just starting, think about that early conversation you're going to have, and then the second order effects of that conversation, where can this lead you? It's not just some feedback, harsh feedback in the company. It's also, 
Can I build a relationship with this person who can then introduce me to? Then uh, you also start thinking about your network in terms of founders. That's a very important one. So you go to founders who have been successful or at least respected in their space as experts or just excellent entrepreneurs and business people. And, and you build a relationship with them. Once again, it's a low pressure. You're not asking them for money, but you can ask them for introductions as well, especially to investors who they trust and have a good working relationship with. I've had a lot of success with that too. Founders who say, hey, Lamine is fantastic. He's building this amazing thing. Hey, you should go look at it. You've invested in us. This is a similar dynamic. We're successful. He's going to be successful. So let's trust by association. So that's another important angle that I highly recommend exploring. But I tell you what, man, like if an investor is investing in you, and you got a, some sort of a soft commitment, they're like a matchstick. They can set the whole thing on fire for you and just, you can raise around just based on that. If they have some weight behind them and they're excited and fired up. I mean, I've had one investor who's like, I am wiring you a million dollars tomorrow, but let me introduce you to three more investors and every single one of them invested as well. And so that is, uh, you know, that's of course one of those home runs, right? You strike gold there or someone who's fired up, thinks that, you know, you, you're doing stuff, whatever you're doing is best things in sliced bread, put some money behind their commitment. And then they have a reputation of being a good investor. And man, that, the whole thing is like a forest fire. <laughs> and I think that the running thread around that's in specifically, right? That's the kind of core believer, right? They have some weight into that conversation. That warm introduction has, has some depth to it. If they're invested money or in the case of a founder, they were invested in and have a close relationship with that fund and yourself. Yeah. Um, because there's definitely a lot of warm intros that are almost a cold outreach. They're just packaged as a warm intro. Yeah. Um, and I think you would agree that they're, they don't really get anywhere. Completely agree. I get founders reach out to me trying to exploit my network. And I tell them all the time, I'm like, if I don't know this person well, if they're not a good investor, if they're just someone, an acquaintance of sorts, I, I'm connecting with them on LinkedIn. My outreach is not going to do any good to you. In fact, it may harm you. So it's better just to go ahead and start with a clean slate and reach out to them yourself. It's got to be, it's got to be logical. It's got to make sense. Why am I reaching out on behalf of someone else and making an introduction? And I think every founder should think of that way too. It's not just to be, because I think a lot of us are delusioned enough to think that, oh my God, what I'm doing is so freaking amazing that I just need to get in front of this person. And I will, I will convince them that, that I'm the one to invest. That doesn't work that way. You've got to think about it. This person's looking at you and they're doubting you right away because they're thinking, is this a, I don't get this idea or is this the right one? Is this the right person to so just give this idea? And you want to completely like de-risk that. And the one way to do it is associate yourself with someone who they trust who said, this person got it. You should definitely support them. And it's human, right? It's making that connection. It's like a testimonial on your website. We got another guest on our podcast. It's just business. It's just another transaction. So try to get the right context around it. The same way you would try to sell a large enterprise client, you wouldn't you'd very wind them and dine them and get the right introductions in and, and build that report that you're the right person for them to do business with. It really is. It's just like enterprise sales in so many different ways, except both parties are usually like crazy risk takers <laughs> <laughs> and you have to manage the personalities. Indeed. This was a fantastic conversation. I do want to end it with our two rapid fire questions that are not fundraising related. And just really curious to hear your thoughts on this. The number one that we usually share is who is one person that you truly look up to and why? In a business context or just in general? <clears throat> in general. Hmm. It's interesting, man. Like I, um, 
I don't have a hero of sorts. I think hero worship is misguided where I'm like, oh my God, this is the person who I want to be. I have like an arsenal of people who I look up to in specific context. For example, I'll bring up Steve Jobs a lot internally in the very specific context of like product management and building. But I don't think Steve Jobs is certainly not my hero. I think Steve Jobs is a flawed man, just like many others. If I had to commit <laughs> for the sake of this discussion and say that a person who I truly look up to, I would say it would be one of the American industrialists from like the 19th century, right? I think a lot of us are obsessed with tech leaders, but really we as a society standing on another uh, sort of a gateway to another industrial revolution. And we have to start thinking like Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, not jobs and musks of this world. And I respect a hell out of JP Morgan. If you ever read the house of Morgan, it's just a fascinating book. This man didn't just build a company. He built, it didn't just build a culture around the company. He truly built a country, he built this country from ground up. I respect the hell out of Vanderbilt, another immigrant, right? That just kind of figured things out, connected this country at the time through railways and steel and building bridges. And I think of what they did and sacrifices they've made and some of the good and bad things that follow them and their reputation. I think we have to start thinking about those components. So that would be my non-answer answer. Still an answer. So it counts. Last question, the longstanding tradition of our company. And we wanted to bring this into the podcast as well, which is always end the conversation with a point of gratitude, taking a short moment of reflection on your past, your history, both business and personal. Who is one person that you would like to say thank you for? Person you're grateful for their contributions to you and your success as we're ending this episode. Yeah, for sure. I haven't really shared my background, but I'm an immigrant and my very first job was military in this country. I joined the Marines. And so transitioning out of the Marine Corps, I went to business school and started both business finance and policy. Uh, I, uh, I kind of struggled in figuring out what I wanted to do post-military. And one of the people who helped me a lot was a mentor of mine. And he is a senior executive at a bank. And he, you know, I was a nobody really. And for whatever reason, he agreed to talk to me through a connection of sorts. And uh, he helped me figure out the finance world and what I should do, which led to me finding a job in finance, which led to my sort of growth and, and career trajectory through both public and private finance and then eventually becoming an entrepreneur. So Jamie, I won't name his last name. Jamie is definitely that person. He's still a friend and a mentor. And he seeded my very first idea, which was crazy. And he gave me the money to, uh, to get out there and do it. Fantastic. Thank Jamie for bringing you on the podcast as well, pretty much, because otherwise <laughs> would ever be in the position to, to have this conversation. Let me, my gratitude goes to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation it was truly inspirational and quite a lot of knowledge to unpack and learn from for myself as well as a lot of other founders who are listening to this generally really, really appreciative for having the opportunity to chat. Thanks a lot. What a great conversation. If you enjoyed it, make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and be on the lookout for a new episode in two weeks as we interview another amazing startup founder and debrief their successful fundraising story. This podcast was made possible by Flowly. If you're currently fundraising or planning to do so in the near future, create a free account today on Flowly at flowly.com. That's F-L-O-W-L-I-E.com and get access to an investor database curated just for you and powerful deck chain capabilities with advanced access and engagement tracking. 
Are you ready to take your fundraising journey to the next level and join thousands of founders across the globe who use the platform every single day? Find the discount code in the show notes and sign up today. That's it for today's episode. See you next time.